Good morning. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. As you are finding your place in God's Word, uh, let me say a word to any visitors who may be here this morning. We want you to know, uh, first of all, that we love you. Second of all, that you're not here by accident. Third of all, we want to recognize that it's probably a little weird. Uh, we don't do things at Sixth Avenue the way that you might have experienced in churches at the past. In the past, this is not a, a show or a presentation. This isn't a country club. It's a family, and we kind of have that feel of family get together. Um, speaking of things you may not be used to, we just got through passing around the plate. Uh, we do that for a number of different reasons that I won't get into right now. But I will tell you, if you're here and you're wondering, man, uh, you know, does, does Jesus just want my money? Does this church, do these people just want my money? Well, th- the word just doesn't belong there. Christ does not just want your money. Christ wants every part of you, all of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure. That's what it means to be Lord. He wants to be Lord over your life. And so I pray that as we begin our time together in God's word this morning, that you will consider what it looks like to submit to Christ, not only as a father in the sky, but also as your Lord, your judge, and your king. Amen. This morning's text tells us the story of the birth and preservation of Moses. And it all begins with one key detail right there in verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 in the book of Exodus. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So Moses is the author of Exodus, and he, as he begins the, the Exodus story, as we move into chapter 2, he, he tells the story of his own birth, and he feels like it's important to start with this key detail that both of his parents were Levites. Now, why is that detail so important for Moses to start his story off here? Well, it's because if you follow the rest of the story, you come to understand that to be a Levite is to be of the priestly tribe of Israel. And, you know, the priests, they are the mediators of the covenant of God, right? They stand between heaven and earth. They stand between God and his people. So right at the beginning of the story, we see Moses is pointing us forward to something. He's saying... I was born to be a priest of God's people. But before Moses can serve as a priest, he must first survive as an infant. You have to remember what's going on here in the story of Egypt, uh, in the story of Moses in Egypt. There is a genocide. Pharaoh has commanded the midwives to kill all of the Hebrew babies, which means that Moses is born under a death sentence. And so we have to ask, how will Moses survive this trial and one day lead the people of God as a priest of God through the Exodus? And that's what this morning's story is all about. If you're a note taker and you like a good thesis statement, here it is. This morning's text highlights God's providential care and protection of Moses despite all of the challenging circumstances of his birth. Now, I recognize that right off the bat, when I use the word providence, some of us feel like we're moving out of the realm of concrete details and we're sort of moving into the realm of mystery. But I want to tell you, I don't think that that's true. There is, of course, some element of mystery and God's hand of providence working through history. Yes, there is mystery there. But in this morning's text, we very clearly see the means by which God is providentially preserving the life of Moses. Namely, God is using five women, five women to work his salvation purposes through the life and birth of Moses. I don't usually title my sermons because who cares, right? Uh, But if you want a title for this morning's sermon, here it is, Five Women Who Saved the World. I have four points for you. Let me read all of the text, and then we will dive in together, starting in chapter 2, 
verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him a basket made of bulrushes, and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, and she said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Lord, would you please help us to hear from you today? Lord, speak. Speak, O Lord. We are hungry for your word. Change us by it. Make us more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I have four points for you this morning. Point number one, midwives. Point number two, mother. Point number three, sister. And point number four, daughter. So, point number one, midwives. I will admit right at the outset of point number one that I'm kind of cheating here. I'm using point one to do a little review of what we learned last week, and if you weren't here last week, well, aren't you happy that I'm doing this? Now you can keep up with the sermon. Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to chapter 1, and let's just read verse 22 to get our bearings. Chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So here we see the decree that caused Moses to be born under a death sentence. But I want you to see something here. Notice that Pharaoh is no longer talking to the Hebrew midwives. Now he is talking to the Egyptians. The text says he told his people. right? And Pharaoh had to make this transition because when he tried to get Shifra and Pua, the midwives, to kill the baby boys, they would not play ball. So now he's turning to his people. He's giving the edict more broadly. This is very much like what you see in a lot of genocides throughout world history. You can think about the genocide in Rwanda or the successive genocides in Rwanda. It wasn't necessarily the top-down government going out, kicking down the door, gun in your face, I'm going to kill you kind of genocide. It was those in authority giving permission for one neighbor to kill another neighbor. And that's what we see in this genocide in Egypt. Now, right at the outset, we have to admit that we don't know all of the facts of this story. So, for example, some commentators think that Shifra and Pua uh, were the midwives that saved Moses' life when he was born, so that he was not thrown into the river. Well, we don't really know that. It seems unlikely, right? Remember the text says that Egypt is swarming with these Hebrews. I mean, they are just reproducing like rabbits. The odds that all of these Hebrew women giving birth can be accommodated by two midwives seems unlikely. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have a significant role to play. Shifra and Pua, it seems like they were the leaders of this this life-saving, baby-saving movement. They set the tone of resisting the genocide. They're a big, important part of this story. Now, I could make a a number of different application points here, but I just want to make one for now. Uh, Even though Roe v. Wade has fallen, abortion is still legal 
in many parts of this country. I would say in most parts of this country, which means that many Christians still feel like they have a part to play in fighting abortion, and they are right. Now, you may wonder, what role do I have to play in fighting against this great and terrible evil in our midst? Well, there's a bunch of different ways. And every person's gift is not going to look like every other person's gift. Some people should be outside in front of abortion clinics preaching the gospel, holding signs, praying, uh, trying to have conversations with volunteers on the other side. But that may not be your role. That may not be your gift. Maybe you're called just to pray, and I shouldn't say just, right? Praying is not the same thing as doing nothing. Maybe you're called to pray, or maybe you're called to give, or maybe you're called to support in some other way, right? But what I want you to see is that whatever you do, it all helps. Do not forget, friends, that a genocide of sorts is still happening in our midst today. Now, before I move on to point two, there's something else in verse 22 that I want you to see. When God first told the midwives to kill the the Hebrew babies, we're not told exactly how they were supposed to do it. But here in verse 22, Moses tells us how the babies were to be murdered. They were to be thrown into the river. And, And in doing this, Pharaoh is turning what is supposed to be a source of life for the people of Egypt and the Hebrews in the land into a means of death. Keep that in your mind. In giving this edict, the Pharaoh turns the Nile River into the river of death. Point number two, Moses' mother. In Exodus 6, we learn the name of Moses' mother, Jochebed. Maybe some of our expecting mothers will name some of their sweet little baby girls after this faithful woman of Scripture, huh? Get a few more Jochebeds at 6th Avenue, amen? Okay. Now, or Shifra or Pua. All right. Now, there's a lot for us to see here in point two, so let me tell you in advance, (laughs) brace yourselves for fun. This is going to be the longest point in the sermon, but it's going to be a good time. Now, there's a lot to see in point two, so let me just get right into it. The first thing that I want us to see is just a really cool thing that I did not want to cut out of the sermon, and I want you to see it. Moses says that Jochebed conceived and bore a son in reference to himself. She conceived and bore a son. Now, for the theology nerds out there, that's a hendiadis. It's two words that are very closely related to one another, paired to one another with the word and. And what I want you to know about this phrase, conceived and bore, is that it's used all throughout the book of Genesis 15 times in all, as the story of salvation is being told. Conceived and bore a son, conceived and bore a son, conceived and bore a son. And through that phrase, you can trace the lineage of salvation. The last time that Moses uses the phrase, conceive and bore a son, is right here. For the rest of the Pentateuch, he does not use that phrase. Why? Well, because he understands that he is the final figure. He is the final patriarch in the story of the formation of Israel. The second thing I want us to see here is another phrase. It says that she saw that he was a fine child, a fine child. That's a good English translation. A a more clunky but literal translation might sound something like this. She saw that he was good. She saw that he was good. Now, does that language, does that phrasing remind you of anything, right? Do you remember what God said of his creation over and over again in Genesis 1? As the artist, he created the landscape. He stepped back and he said, this is good. Now, I promised myself I would not go crazy chasing all of the threads that could be chased on this point. I just want to say, One thing here and then we'll move on. Even in the midst of terrible, awful, evil, suffering, oppression, slavery, even in the midst of extreme darkness, Moses' mother looked on the life of her child and said, He is good. It is not uncommon for arguments to be made today against children that sound something like this. 
How could I possibly bring a baby into the world when there is so much suffering? And then insert whatever you want. You know, the world's burning up with climate change. How could I have a baby, right? Or the, the poverty or, or the abuse or insert whatever you want to insert into there. How could I bring a baby into this terrible, awful, dark world where they are definitely going to suffer? Most of the people who are saying that live pretty comfortable lives. Most of their children will probably not face great and terrible suffering and oppression. But Moses' son certainly did. Remember, by the time we come to this story, the Egyptians are enslaved. We're going to see in the second half of the chapter, the, excuse me, the, the Hebrews are enslaved and they are, they are crying out to, to God. They're, they're saying, please rescue us. Everything is, is dark, dark and we're suffering and we're hurting. And she could have said, you know what? Maybe it is better that he just be thrown into the Nile. Our life is so hard. Everything is so difficult. I don't want my baby to have to go through this. But she didn't do that. She said, he is good. His life is good. It has meaning. It has value. It has purpose. She beheld the image of God in him. And so she kept him, she kept him and she hid him for as long as she possibly could, which the text tells us was about three months, which brings us to the third thing I want us to see here in point two. Look at verse three. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. I hope you can feel the pain and the difficulty of Jochebed's decision. She, she gives birth to her beautiful baby boy, Moses. She sees that he's good. His life has meaning and value and purpose. And then she makes this incredibly brave decision to defy the king's edict. She risks the safety of her entire family by keeping this baby. But as you well know, babies are hard to hide, right? All the moms with little babies in church on Sunday morning, they spend half of their time going, shh, 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 you know, be quiet, right? Which, by the way, if you're here with a baby that's struggling to be quiet, we're used to it. I mean, don't let your kid go crazy, but also you don't go crazy, okay? We're a church that loves babies, and we're glad that your babies are here, okay? But babies cry, like, a lot. And so... I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like for Jochebed to try to keep Moses hidden. And maybe she tried to pass off some of his cries as the cries of his older brother, Aaron, which we haven't even talked about. But he's probably around three years old at this point in the story. And, you know, maybe she's telling people, oh, you know, Aaron, yeah, he's still a, he's crying a lot. But at some point, Jochebed realizes that if she keeps Moses around any longer, She's going to be found out, and he's probably going to die at the hands of the Egyptians. And so I wonder, what would you do? What would I do in a situation like that? I pray that none of us ever have to scheme to figure out a way to save the lives of our children. But this is what Jochebed did. She put him in a basket that she made, and she put him in the river. Now, you're not going to understand the significance of the faith of Jochebed that this action reveals unless you understand one really important word in this story. In verse 3, the word that is translated as basket is used only one other time in the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis chapter 6, and it's used 28 times there in Genesis chapter 6. Do you know what that word is? Ark. You'll also notice that the word ark here is made with bitumen and pitch. Do you know what else was made with pitch? The ark in Genesis chapter 6. There's more here. The word translated as basket or ark is believed to be a loan word from the Egyptian language. And you, maybe you're not familiar with the concept of a loan word. Oftentimes when two people, like uh, linguistically distinct people, intermix for a time, their languages intermix as well. So for example, Spanish has a lot of loan words from, from Arabic because the Arabs populated Spain for several centuries. So the example with that would be the word ojalá, which means like, I hope. That's not a, that's not a native Spanish word. It's borrowed from the Arabic language. 
Well, in the same way, the Hebrews were for several hundred years in the land of Egypt. They took some of the Egyptian language and used it as their own. And linguists believe that this word baskets or ark is borrowed from the Egyptians. And do you know what this word most roughly translates into in Egyptian? Coffin. Coffin. One commentator puts it all together like this. He says, well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot to unpack here. The, one of the things when you're reading the commentators about this story, sometimes they like to let their imagination run away with them, right? They, they try to say, well, maybe this happened and maybe that happened. One potential scenario is that Moses' mother was putting on a pretend funeral for her baby as a way of sending him away and saving him in his in his time of need, right? So maybe she fed him, got him nice and full, nice and tired, let him go into a deep baby sleep, and then she put him in the basket, put him in the river, sent him off with a prayer and said, Lord, I can't keep him any longer, but, but, but maybe you can put him into the hands of someone who will save him. If that story is true, it would put his mother right in the same vein as Shifra and Pua, a sort of deception for the sake of salvation. But we don't know that for certain. Here is what we do know for certain. Moses is trying to show us, the readers of this story, something significant, something about God. Commentator Michael Morales says says this, and I think he's right. He says that the Lord took what was supposed to be Moses' coffin, his tomb, as it were, and he turns it into a womb. He took the tomb and turned it into the womb, right? This is the vehicle by which Moses is going to go out to the river, the river of death, and he is probably going to die. And yet this basket coffin did not lead to Moses' death. It actually kept, kept him safe from the waters of death until he could emerge up out of the basket, therefore the womb, in a sort of rebirth, not to his own mother, but to the mother that was to be the princess. You could say it another way. Pharaoh intended the river to be the means by which Moses would die, but God intended that the river would be the means by which Moses was saved. You could say it a third way. What, Mo- what Pharaoh intended for evil, God intended for good. But we could just keep going. We could just keep looking at the story. We can take the jewel of the story and rotate it and look at another facet. Do you remember in last week's story, uh, excuse me, in last week's service, we read the story of Jesus' parents and how they descended into Egypt shortly after Jesus was born? Why do we do that? If you weren't here for that, let me just give you, or if you were here for that, but you just don't really know this story very well, this is one of the lesser known stories of the Bible. Let's recap that because it's actually really significant. So Herod, who's kind of like a Roman pharaoh, right? Uh, Herod wants to kill the baby Jesus, so he initiates a kind of genocide, not in Egypt, but in Bethlehem. He wants all the newborn babies in Bethlehem to be killed. The Lord came to Jesus' parents and warned them of this danger in advance. And so what did they do? They fled to Egypt. Now think about that. They left the promised land and they went down into the land of death. That's what Egypt is And they went into the land of death in order to escape death. Therefore, it was an extreme act of faith for Mary and Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt in order to save him. In a sense, they had to take their infant into death before he could come out of death. You see the parallels? Before Moses could save God's people, he had to pass through death. Before Jesus could save God's people too, he had to pass through death. First in Egypt, then in his baptism, then on the cross. Just think about Jesus' baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? Was Jesus a sinner? No. It was in its very nature symbolic. He had to show himself to be the true and better Noah and the true and better Moses. 
He had to show himself in that lineage, someone who had to go down into the waters of death and come up out of them. That's what saviors do as you trace the story of salvation. And this is where this story and Jesus' story connect to your story. This is one of the main truths of the gospel. If you are unfamiliar with the gospel, this will be a good time to pay extra close attention. Before you can live, truly live, you must pass through death. This is one of the main themes of Christianity. Jesus says it like this in Mark chapter, chapter 8. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You remember in John 3, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was supposed to know the Bible super well. He didn't. Jesus said, you have to be born again. Nicodemus said, I'm old. How can a man who's old be born again? I don't understand how that works. And, and Jesus says, you're, you're missing it. You're missing it, Nicodemus. You don't get it. I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And the only way that you can enter into the, the kingdom of heaven, into life, is to first die. Right? You must die. Your flesh must die. Your sin must die. Your rebellion must die. Only when you die can you then be born again. When Christians talk about being born again, we're not talking about some demarcation of a political class or a voting block. We're talking about people who have to die in order that they might then live. Nicodemus, like I said, was a Pharisee. He, when Jesus started talking about passing through death in order to come back out and live again, it should have made more sense to him than it did. But he did not understand the story. He did not understand the Noah story. He did not understand the Moses story. He didn't even understand the Israel story because Israel, as a people, had to pass through the waters of death before they could live. That's what the whole story of the Red Sea is all about, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says it like this. Referencing Israel, he says they were all baptized into the sea. They were all baptized into the sea. Remember, baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. Whenever we have a baptism in this baptismal and someone goes under the water, what is that representing? You're going into death, the waters of death. And then when you come up out, what is it symbolizing? Your resurrection with Christ to newness of life. And before Israel could fully, finally be a constituted people of God, they had to go through the waters of death at the Red Sea and then they had to come out alive, reborn by God on the other side. And the same thing is true of you. The same thing is true of me. The same thing is true of all men. If they truly want to live, they have to pass through the waters of death. They have to be born again. The final thing I want to say here in point two um, is to the mothers, specifically the mothers of Sixth Avenue. I don't think... Uh, I don't want to say this too strongly. I think most mothers in this room will never have a story as extreme in relation to their children as this story of Jochebed and Moses. But that does not mean that you will not have to do the same kind of thing as a mother that Jochebed does in this story with her baby. You probably feel this as we walk through the story, but I'll just say it anyways. As parents, we live in our own Egypt, right? We are raising our children, and we are not raising them in the promised land. We are raising our children in the midst of evil and darkness and death and oppression, and there is danger on every side. And like Jochebed, you have probably seen the evil that can come upon your children in the land of death. Just think about how many infants amongst the Israelites she probably saw go into the river. And you probably look around you and you see even believing parents. You see what happens with some of their children. And then you look at your precious children and you are... You're just, you, know, you know, like your chest gets tight. You get that feeling, that knotted up feeling in your stomach. You get nervous. You get anxious. I love my 
children so much. They're a gift from the Lord. I want to protect them. I want to keep them. I don't want to let anything bad happen to them. But you have to know. You have to know that like Jochebed, like every other parent, at some point, you will have to let your children go. You will have to let your children go. Jochebed had to let Moses go into the river as an infant. And your river moment might be different. I don't know what your river moment is going to be. Every parent is different. Every family is different. For, for you, maybe your, your, your Jochebed river moment is when you send your kids off to college. And by the way, there's nothing that says you have to send your kids off to college. Send them to Calhoun. Amen. Keep them safe. <laughs> Except, shoot, dang, there is sin there too, right? Okay. Or maybe you feel like the river moment is when they get married. Because, right, when they get married, leave and cleave. Like there's a real sense in which they are leaving you. And, and they are starting their own family. And that family takes precedence and priority over your family. And that's really scary because you love your family. And on Christmas, you're not going to be here? Why? Because you're going with them? I don't like that. that. That might feel like your river moment. Or maybe it's when they just move out of the area. You, just, you don't like them being that far away from you. Or maybe it's one day your children come to you, one of your children at least comes to you and says, I want to go be a missionary in insert name of really scary place on the mission field where they will almost certainly die or face tremendous suffering. You say, I can handle anything, but I, and I know I'm supposed to be able to accept them going to die for Jesus, but I just can't. Or maybe your river moment is very much like Jacobed's river moment and you face the death of a child. Far too many of us have had to face that. Or, perhaps worst of all, your river moment is when you see your children walking away from the Lord. And you can't do anything to stop it. And you are terrified because you know that far better is it for your children to die in the Lord than to go out and be lost in the world with no hope of salvation, even if they live to be a hundred. And it's hard for us. Moms and dads both, yes, of course, it's hard for us, but it's even harder for moms. There's something in men, I think, the way that God created us to be able to constitutionally deal with difficult situations in a way that's different it's harder for moms, but here's what you need to see. Mom, if you're struggling, or maybe you're not struggling now, but the day will come. You will, have your, you will have your river moment. You will struggle. Here's what you need to know. When you release your children, you are not releasing them to the world. It may look like that, and it may feel like that, but if God is real, if he is your God, your covenant God, you are releasing them into his care. God loves your children more than you love your children. God is more righteous, more just, more loving, more everything than you are. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Of course he will. And so it is a measure of faith. It's a demonstration of faith for you to let your children go. One of the bravest, most faith-filled things a mother can do is let her baby go. But the opposite is also true. Moms, dads, I want to be gentle here, but we, we, it has to be said, if you refuse to let your children go, what, what are you saying? If you say, I'm not going to let my baby go. What you're saying is that God can be trusted with most things in your life, but not everything, not the most important thing. And the thing that you can't trust God with, well, that might be your God. That might be your idol. You're saying, I can take care of my children. I can love my children. I can lead and govern the lives of my children better than you can, Lord. And that is just certainly not true. But if Jochebed, if she would have refused to let Moses go, he would have almost certainly died, right? She let him go in hopes of saving him because it became too dangerous for him to stay in the house. Now, whether you realize that or not, mom, 
Dad, there's going to be a point in your children's life where you are going to do them more harm than good by trying to hang on to them and keep them. Because what your children need most is not you. They need a Savior. And they may not ever see their need for a Savior if you are being the God of their life. More could be said, but we will move on to point number three, sister. After Jochebed releases Moses into the river, verse 4 said, says that his sister watches him from a safe distance to find out what happens to him. And then she sees Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, along with some of her ladies, have found the baby, and then they have compassion on the baby. And then we see this in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? We know from Exodus 15 that the name of Moses' sister is Miriam. And in this morning's story, Miriam is held up for us as an example of courage, initiative, and love. And we're going to look at those very briefly. Courage. Courage. It could not have been easy for Miriam, a little slave girl, to walk up to the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, but she does. This is the guy who his household has declared a genocide. This is the family that's trying to kill her family, and yet she has the courage to walk up to her. Love. What compels Miriam to approach the princess in this way? Is she just a naturally brave girl? Maybe, we don't know, but here's what we do know. She loves her brother. That's why she stands at a distance and watches him because she cares about what happens to him. And we know from the rest of the scriptures, don't we, brothers and sisters, that perfect love casts out fear. Miriam loves her little brother. And this is a significant departure, by the way, in the pattern that you see throughout the book of Genesis. Throughout Genesis, all you have, the effects of sin, all you have is sibling rivalries. Cain versus Abel, Jacob versus Esau, Joseph versus his brother. But here we have a brother and a sister, and they love each other. Well, at least she loves him very much. She's actually it seems like, willing to follow him into death in order to save his life. Does that remind you of anyone? The third thing is initiative. Initiative. Who? The princess did not call Miriam and say, hey, find a Hebrew to nurse this baby. The sister went up to, to, to Miriam went up to the, to the princess and said, I'll, I'll do that. The princess did not in any way initiate. This was solely Miriam's initiative. So there you have it. Courage, love, and initiative from Moses' sister. And this is exactly why Miriam's name is recorded in the same company as Moses and Aaron in the Exodus story. Just listen to this language from Micah chapter 6. It's mind-blowing. The Lord is Uh, talking to his people about the exodus, this great event of their salvation. And he says this, For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. How did I do that? And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam is counted, along with her brothers, as the instruments by which God rescued his people. Let me just pause here. I've heard a lot of objections to the Bible that it is just so, so self-evidently this patriarchal, chauvinist book, and all it does is perpetuate all kinds of really nasty things like that. And you know, all the stories in the Bible, men are the heroes and women are the villains. This is a critique that can only come from someone who literally has not even made it past the second book in the Bible. Right? The first person to fail in the Bible is Adam, not Eve. And then as soon as you get into the book of Exodus, the first five characters in the book that God is using to deliver his people are all women. It's crazy. If you're going to critique something, at least read it and make sure you understand it so you don't sound like an idiot. 
Moving on. I want to give you two applications before we move on to our final point. First is to the children of the church. Uh, hey, if you have a brother or sister in the church, raise your hand. If you have a brother or sister. If, well, I guess if you're an adult, don't raise your hand. Talk to the children, but I like your style. Yeah? All right. I, and uh, I need, if you have a brother, if you're a child and you have a brother or sister in the church, I need you to come down right here. Come on down. Yeah. Uh, moms, dads, I'll let you decide if your teenagers need to come down. Come down right here. Thank you. 
All right, the, that was application point number one. <laughs> application point number two. For all the members of this church, look around the room. These are your brothers, and I noticed nobody looked. These are your brothers and sisters as well. You are all siblings in the household of God, and God has given you as gifts to one another to protect and to keep one another. God is using you to save each other, to keep one another all the way to the end. More can be said about that, but I've already gone long. Moving on to point number four, daughter. Daughter. Look at verse six. When she opened the basket, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So why did Pharaoh's daughter save Moses? That may seem obvious. She's a woman. She's a human. She looked down. She saw a baby in need, and then she acted to save the baby. Isn't that what you would expect to happen? Well, no, not necessarily. Remember, this princess is the daughter of Pharaoh, the man who issued the edict, to carry out this genocide in the land. We have every reason to believe that she could have been just totally on board with her father's agenda. She could have been very happy to see all of these Hebrew baby boys die in the river. And yet, verse 6 says, she took pity on him. Guys, this may seem natural to you. It is not at all natural in the human condition, if you look throughout the history of the world, if you think that this is just what people do, they take good care of babies, yeah, that's just not the way it goes. Uh, You could just walk through history and you can see example after example after example of nations and peoples killing babies like it's nothing. We live in a country where people kill babies like it's nothing. Most of them are in the womb, so we sanitize it and we pretend like it's not as bad as it really is. But we live in a land of baby killers. And all throughout history, you see the exact same thing. I was reading an article as I was preparing for this week's uh, sermon about the history of infanticide. And one of the... It was hilarious. It was walking through all these ancient civilizations, Carthage, Rome. But before we got to them, it was talking about Egypt. And it says, listen, the one thing that we know about the Egyptians is that they did not tolerate infanticide. Reference, source, have you read the Bible? They seem to be very okay with infanticide. So what is it in, in a very brutal, hostile culture that has really no, takes no qualms with killing babies? A daughter from a household that has no qualms with killing babies, how is it that she took pity on Moses? Well, it's, it's because of the doctrine of common grace. We're not going to unpack that doctrine fully this morning. The doctrine of common grace says a lot of things, but one of the things that it says is that is that God providentially restrains evil in the world and prevents people from being as bad as they could possibly be, right? So uh, you might think, oh, Hitler exists in a special, distinct category of human beings. Idi Amin is his own distinct kind of evil despot. Joseph Stalin, something happened there that is very atypical in the human experience, wrong. They are all very human, just like you and me. And one of the things that the doctrine of common grace says is that one of the only differences between the vast majority, I'm not talking about Christians, of just unregenerate people, the only difference between unregenerate people who live more or less morally decent lives than Hitler and Stalin and Idi Amin, the only difference is God's hand of restraining grace. He He prevents evil in the world from being as bad as it can possibly be. And we see evidence of that here with the princess. We have no reason to believe that Pharaoh's daughter was a believer, that she had come to partake in the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that she had accepted Yahweh as her Lord and God. We have every reason to believe, in fact, that she was an unbeliever. And yet, 
the Lord providentially used her to save the life of Moses. When you think about the story of salvation, you probably often think about the big characters, especially, right, obviously the believers. You got the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Jacobs and the Joshuas and the Davids and the, and the Pauls and the Peters and obviously the Jesuses, the Jesus. We think about these mighty, faith-filled heroes that God uses to accomplish his redemptive purposes, and that's not wrong at all. But we should also recognize that God uses the unregenerate. He uses unbelieving people in our stories to lead us to our salvation. I could tell you a hundred stories from my life. Just one example would be one night I was driving high and drunk out of my mind. I was driving down Central Parkway. I almost T-boned a police officer. I almost T-boned a police officer. They opened the car. They found all kinds of stuff, drugs. You know what they did? They let me go. I'm not saying that's good or bad. We do have a police officer among us. I'll tell you who it was later. You know what happened a week later? The Lord sent me to the place where I got saved. Now, I'm not trying to be all red string on the, on the whiteboard, right? But I mean, I think one of the main reasons, there's no reason why a cop should have let me go that night. But the cop let me go. And a week later, I was in the place where I came to know the Lord. And if you think about your own story, you will probably recognize that there are a lot of people who have done you a lot of spiritual good. And most of them have been believers, pastors, parents, friends, college leaders. But if you think carefully about your own story and your own testimony, you'll probably recognize that the Lord used some unbelievers in there as well, right? He used some non-Christians as part of the story of your salvation. Now, in this story, right, there are five women we're talking about this morning. Four of them are believers. One of them is not a believer. That's a four-to-one ratio, if my math is correct. That's probably about right in your story, people doing you good. I don't know. Maybe it will be more. Maybe it will be less. But we should recognize that part of God's grace in our lives is not just special grace, but also common grace that he works in the lives of unbelievers. And it's one of the reasons, friends, why we should be, even though there are all kinds of problems, religious problems, evangelistic problems, theological problems in the Bible Belt, one of the benefits of the Bible Belt is that there is an abundance of common grace. There are a lot of unbelievers here who live lives better than they should because of God's providence. And for the time being, while that lasts, we should rejoice and celebrate that. Now, there's one more thing I want us to see before we close our time together in God's word. I want us to see the sovereign grace, not just the common grace, but the sovereign grace of God at work in this story. I told you in our introductory sermon that one of the main themes of the book of Exodus was going to be the sovereignty of God, and I wasn't kidding. I want you to stop and think about what's happening in this story. I know the sermon is a little long, so come back to me and let's, let's, let's end on a high note. Pharaoh is trying to kill the seed of the woman. But his own seed, his daughter, saves Moses. The river that was supposed to be the means of Moses' death was actually the instrument of his salvation. The Lord orchestrates the events of this story in such a way that Pharaoh's coffers will pay Jochebed to raise Moses under the royal protection of the house of Pharaoh until he becomes a prince. That's what verses 9 and 10 are all about. It's not that the baby Moses just goes back to Jochebed. The princess says, I'm going to pay you to take care of him until the appointed time. So now baby Moses is back with his mother. She's sitting under the, the covenant blessings of that household. She's receiving, he's receiving training about the faith of Yahweh, the promises of God, the history of, of Israel. He's being, he's with his family. He is under the protection because by the way, if the princess says, hey, you go with her, nobody's going to mess with that baby now. And Pharaoh himself is paying for all of this to happen until the day comes when he is supposed to rise up and rescue God's people. God says, oh, you think, 
You think you can kill my children? No, I'm going to use your children to save my children, and you're going to pay for it out of your own pocket, and I'm going to put the Savior of my people in your household, uh, in his own household to keep him safe until I'm ready to bring him into your house, household. It's, it's incredible. Even the name of Moses speaks to God's sovereignty over the story. Look at, look at verse 11. It says, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, there's something really interesting happening here. The, the, the name Moses does not mean I drew him out of the water. The name Moses means one that draws. One that draws. It's not specific to the first person. So what we see here is that Moses' daughter thinks I'm going to name him this because I am the one who saves. I am the one who draws out of the waters. But she could not be more wrong. She doesn't understand that even in the naming of this child, God is rebuking the household of Pharaoh. Listen to Psalm 18 where God is talking about the Exodus event. He says, I sent from on high, he took me, this is the psalmist, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. This is God. God is the one who draws from the waters of death. Or Psalm 124, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, The flood of waters would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. But they didn't. Why? Because God is the one who draws. Psalm 144. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the waters of death. Pharaoh's daughter thinks, ah, look at me. I'm the one who draws from the water and saves. But she is wrong. God is the one who draws out of the waters and saves. And, and listen, friends, if you are here, and this is the first time you're really seriously considering the claims of Christianity, the first time you're really wrestling with what does this word gospel mean? What is this whole Christian thing all about? This is as good a place to start as any as you're considering this. The gospel says that you are drowning. You are in the waters of death. You are in the waters of God's wrath. And he's not mean or cruel to have you there. You put yourself there. You chose to walk away from the safety of dry land, from his love, from his grace, from his mercy, from his kindness, from his goodness, from his patience, his peace. You chose sin. You put yourself into the waters of death. And the promise of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God can draw you out. He is the one who draws out. And some of you may be thinking, just like the princess, I am the one who draws out. You may be thinking, you probably have, you, you have a savior complex. You think God puts you here to save other people. You think God puts you here to save yourself. You think no matter what situation I get into, I can fix myself. Instead of drawing yourself out of the water, you probably think about it like this. I can dig a pit, but then I'll climb out. But friends, the pit of sin is something that you cannot climb out of on your own strength. The waters of death and wrath and judgment and hell are so deep and so furious and so ferocious, you can never come up out of those waters in your own strength. I, I recently saw a video where a surfer was out playing in the, in the beach by the rocks, and he says, I'm a strong swimmer, I can handle it, it's not a big deal. And the video just shows this, this surfer getting crushed up against the rocks over and over and over again. And at the very last second, he somehow manages to get up onto the beach, and he just lays down, he collapses, he's dying. And they go and they interview him afterwards, and he says... <clears throat> I thought I was a strong swimmer, but the ocean is too much for me. It was too much for me. If you want to be saved, friend, you have to realize that the waters are too much for you. And you have to trust God when he says that he loves you and he has done everything needed to rescue you from the waters. He rescued you by sending his son Jesus into the depths of the waters. He descended all the way down into the black depths where no light penetrates, where everything is cold and there's, there's nothing there. His son went down into the death and resurrected. And he promises you that if you want, you can go with him. You can resurrect. You can come out of the waters and reach the beachhead. You can be safe in him.
And so I pray that you will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to not in any way trust in ourselves, but to trust only in you and what you have done to save us. You are the ark. You are the boat. You went into the tomb. You came out on the other side. And we want to come with you. And if we trust you, we know that we will. And so we rejoice together in your name. Amen.